0: God tested Abraham. He said to him, Abraham. And he said, here I am. He said, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains that I shall show you. Please pray with me. Dear God, we ask you to join us here in this place this morning and we trust that you are here with us may my words be your words and all of our thoughts your thoughts we pray all of this in jesus name amen please sit i used to be a rock i never used to cry i'm not necessarily claiming that that's a good or healthy thing it Just something that used to be true of me. I experienced sadness, of course. I'm not a sociopath, but tears were just never something that came for me. I'm not sure I ever felt emotionally overwhelmed. Uh, My wife and I would be watching a movie and I'd look over and there'd be tears running down her face, even if it was something that we'd seen dozens of times. And that was just never me. Hotel Rwanda, the killing fields, nothing. Like I said, I was a rock. And then I had kids. I first realized that something had changed in me when I found myself crying at the end of, wait for it, Armageddon. Bruce Willis sacrifices himself to save the earth by landing on and personally blowing up an asteroid the size of Texas, and he's using his last moments of life to say goodbye to his daughter, apologizing that he's not going to be able to keep his promise to come home. I'm sorry, he says. I love you, and I'm weeping. And so it went. On and on. Signs, interstellar. Just this week, I cried at Rudy, for goodness sake. Any father and his children dealing with loss or sorrow or pain, and I am down for the count these days. And now, here's God asking Abraham to sacrifice his son. But... It's not a beautiful moment. At least it sure doesn't start out as one. It's a test. God said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. He said, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love and go to the land of Moriah. Offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains that I shall show you. This is awful. We think of God as love. But this this is a test. It begins God tested Abraham and tests don't equal love. Tests are the clearest and simplest manifestations of judgment. That's why someone gives you a test to see if you're good enough to judge you. Will you pass or will you fail? It's one thing for a teacher to give you a test or a coach to make you try out for the team. But when there's supposed to be love, tests don't make me cry beautiful emotional tears. Tests make me angry. I'm reminded of the scene in When Harry Met Sally, when Billy Crystal is telling Bruno Kirby about how his wife wants a trial separation. She just wants to try it, he says. But we can still date, like this is supposed to cushion the blow. I mean, I got married so I could stop dating. So I don't see where we can still date is any big incentive, since the last thing you want to do is date your wife, who's supposed to love you. The last thing you want to do is date your wife, who's supposed to love you. Harry understands this distinction and he's angry about it. Dating is testing, it's not love. So, what does God's test of Abraham tell us about God, who's supposed to be love? Well, as we look at the story this morning, I want to say a couple of things. I want to say one sort of overarching true thing. And then because of that one true thing, I want to share two pieces of good news. So one truth that leads to two pieces of good news. Here's the truth. God's interaction with Abraham here does not call into question the fact that God is love. It cannot, because God is love. We read that in the scriptures Very clearly, in 1 John 4, Scripture clearly states that God is love twice. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. That's verse 8. So, we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love. And whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. That's verse 16. St. Paul expands on this idea, describing the love of God so eloquently in his proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. God is love. And this is how he expresses that love to us by sending his son to save us sinners. Jesus himself says that God so loved the world that he sent his son to save it. And of course, the love of God is not just a New Testament phenomenon Psalm 86:15 but you O Lord are a God merciful and gracious slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness Zephaniah 3:17 the Lord your God is in your midst a mighty one who will save he will rejoice over you with gladness he will quiet you by his love In Jeremiah 31, God tells Israel, I have loved you with an everlasting love. Therefore, I have continued my faithfulness to you and on and on. God is love. He says so in the Bible. In fact, the Bible is the story of God's love poured out again and again on his rebellious and unloving people. So when we come upon difficult passages like this one, God testing Abraham, we have to figure out how this God can be love, knowing that he is. We do not need to worry that this seemingly terrible story means that God isn't love. God is love. We do not need to worry. We just need to understand. So here's the key to understanding. Our God is not a one-word God. He is love, yes, but he is also things that the human ear finds more disturbing. The scriptures tell us that he is jealous, that he is holy. For instance, you get this incredible passage in Joshua 24 where the people... Promise Joshua that they will serve the Lord, and Joshua warns them about him. You are not able to serve the Lord, Joshua says, for he is a holy God. He is a jealous God. And he will not forgive your transgressions or your sins. Our God is not a one word God, our God is a two word God. He is love. But he is also perfection. He is also holiness. He is lawmaker and lawkeeper. He is creator and savior. He is and he speaks two words. And God's first word is one of creation, one of jealousy, holiness, of lawmaking, of testing. This word can say to a man, take your son, your only son whom you love and offer him there as a burnt offering." This is, I think we must admit, an impossible thing. But this impossible thing is not out of character for God. He asks for the impossible all the time. Have no other gods before me. Love your enemies. Be pure in heart and mind, free from anger and lust. Be perfect as your father in heaven is perfect. The first word of our creator God, our holy God, our law giving God, the word of testing is a word that breaks us down. This first word, the command to do the impossible strips us bare and shows us our need. And who has been stripped more bare than a father asked to sacrifice his son? If I'm crying at the end of Armageddon, I cannot imagine how Abraham feels but it is when we are stripped bare that we are ready to hear god's second word that he is provider that he is law keeper that he is love in fact It's only in understanding that our God is this kind of God, a two-word God, that we can get anything like good news out of this passage. Otherwise, it turns God into the most callous sort of king you could possibly imagine. I need to see how deeply you worship me. Sacrifice your son. But knowing that God is holy and that God is love, I think that there are two pieces of good news that are proclaimed to us in this story. First, we are reminded that we need a miraculous intervention, just like Abraham. And that a miraculous intervention is provided, just like it was for Abraham. And second, we see that the faithfulness that is rewarded here is not ultimately Abraham's faithfulness, but God's. Meaning that we can rest in God's promises, just like Abraham. So let's look at these one at a time. First, our need for and God's provision of a miraculous intervention. I remember in the first few months before we had our first child, a profound nervousness snuck up on me. What kind of father was I going to be? I'd never done it before and had no reason to think I'd be particularly good at it. I was starting to freak out. After Hazel was born, I was able to cool out a little bit. And when I did that, I realized, in retrospect, that the thing that had made me so nervous was all the choices I was going to have to make as a father from the ridiculous to the sublime. Cloth diapers are disposable, bottle food or table food, breast milk or formula, Harvard or Yale. The choices seemed endless. And what I realized after the fact was that I had been thinking subconsciously that if I could just make every good choice along this infinite decision tree, then everything would be okay. Hazel would turn out to be chief justice of the Supreme Court or something. Still watching out for that, honey. In the face of what I perceived as a test, I was going crazy. Love died. It wasn't until I realized I had to give up to confess that I was going to make a ton of mistakes all along the way and beg for a miraculous intervention that I could have some peace. And that's when love bloomed. So when we are confronted with a story like Abraham's, we are reminded that God's first word is impossible. Sacrifice your son. Make all the right decisions. Raise your child perfectly. But the command to do the impossible strips us bare and shows us our need. And who has been stripped bare more than a father asked to sacrifice his son or a father about to have his first child? But it is when... We are stripped bare, that we can hear God's second word, that he is provider, that he is law keeper, that he is love. So what do we do? We give up from the beginning. God asks for the impossible and we throw ourselves on the mercy of the court. God, help me. And this story teaches us that God will provide. That ram will be in the thicket every single time. Our failure is met by God's triumph, our sin by his righteousness, our death by his life. He intervenes for us in a miraculous way, sending a substitute. His own son, the son he loves, to be sacrificed on a mountaintop for us. The second thing we can learn from this story is that it is God's faithfulness on which the story turns, not Abraham's. That's good news for us because it means that we can also rely on God's Faithfulness, instead of on our own. Remember, as you read this story, that God has previously promised Abraham a bunch of times that through Isaac he will have a great family. Abraham's faith, his willingness to obey this seemingly awful command and pass this impossible test, is actually founded on God's promise. God doesn't seem to provide for Abraham because of Abraham's faithfulness. He provides the ram because of his own faithfulness, because of the promise that he has already made. Later in Genesis 22, the Lord does tell Abraham, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore and your offspring shall Possess the gate of his enemies and in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. But even in this blessing, he is simply reiterating the promise that he has already made. It is God's faithfulness that has really been put to the test here. And again, God provides. The ram is in the thicket every day. Single time. Jesus hung on the cross for you. It is finished. God is faithful. This is our two word God at work. He does everything. He is law giver and law keeper. He asks for the impossible and then provides it. This story is an intentional foretaste of the miraculous intervention of Jesus Christ's death for you. Romans 8:32, "He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will He not also with him, graciously give us all things? On the same mountain where God would stop Abraham from sacrificing his son. God himself would go through with the sacrifice of his own son. God asked Abraham to do the impossible. But then provided a substitute. He asks us for the impossible and then provides again his own son, his only son. For you. The first word. Strips us bare. Sacrifice. For me. It feels. Like judgment. Like a test. God asks. For the impossible. We weep. And gnash our teeth. But God never leaves us. Stripped bare. He doesn't leave those terrified disciples in the back of the boat he calms the storm he provides a ram in fact it is more profound than that he is the ram he becomes stripped bare for us my god my god why have you forsaken me jesus cried stripped bare For you. In that moment, God's second word overcame his first word. His love overcame his perfection. His love overcame his holiness. In fact, because of that moment, a great miracle happens. On account of his love, you actually become perfect. On account of his love, You actually become holy. You are clothed with Christ and made right with God forever. God seems to ask for the impossible. But that is not the end of the story. God, faithful to his promise, intervenes miraculously in the person and work of Jesus Christ. God incarnate for you. And because God himself interceded for you on that mountaintop, you are saved. Amen.